Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, November 24th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Christine, you were noticing uh, a strange reticence to focus uh, media's attention obsessively on the Waukesha car suspect, uh, the man who uh, all evidence indicates deliberately drove through a crowd trying to hit people with his car has killed, I think, eight now, including grandmothers and an, and a, an eight-year-old kid. It's either six or eight people, dozens injured, and somehow this is not as big a story as Kyle Rittenhouse or as any, you know. I mean, this is, you know. Uh, anyway, go ahead. Well, I, I was just I was noticing two things. One is that the, the story is nowhere near getting nowhere near as much play as it would if the race of the uh, suspect and the races of the victims were reversed. That's just a fact, because we have seen this in previous uh, previous examples of this and that it, the euphemisms being employed by by mainstream media outlets. So we, we keep hearing about a car crash, Christmas parade crash, Christmas parade car crash or SUV hits all these children and grandmas in a parade. This was a suspect who was caught, whose social media feed was full of hate, hate for white people, hate for Jews, um, lots of Black Lives Matter supporting, you know, but but with a very violently tinged edge. It's all out there. It was all available. Uh, people could see it right away. Reporters could see it right away. Um, and while I don't think it's ever a good idea to wildly speculate on someone's motives when they've simply been arrested and, and charged rather than tried. Um, that That is what the media does when the suspect's race is not black. And we saw that with Kyle Rittenhouse to, to very detrimental effect. But I do think that, again, that we, we talk a lot about how certain narratives are very difficult for media outlets to grapple with because they go against what they think they know about how this country works. And this is a horrible tragedy, and it deserves the attention and scrutiny of a media that otherwise has spent the last you know, year and a half talking about racial reckonings, right? This man was driven by some form of hate, at least if we judge him by his own words and his own social media postings. That's at least uh, worthy of reporting on, um, at least out of respect for the people who he attacked. It's worthy of reporting on, but it's, you know, reckless media speculation is irresponsible, Right. Right, but they can report the facts. Assess and assume motives, and it's an assessment that they make only after careful investigation, um, before they even release something like that to the public. And in a sane media environment, they would defer to law enforcement before engaging in that sort of thing. And they're doing that here only because they can't make an irresponsible leap to a preferred narrative that sows social disorder and unrest. But they're not reporting what law enforcement has said. Law enforcement said very clearly he was driving, trying to hit more people. Oh, was oh, oh, they are. Abe wants to say something, but they are. I want to point out that the first story that came out about, about, about Daryl Brooks and his behavior on social media came out through S.E. Cup and then was confirmed by others she did not source it, but CBS sourced it to Homeland Security officials saying he, they, it appeared that he was fleeing the scene of another crime and that therefore had, you know, come somehow come upon the parade and in his reckless driving trying to get away from the police had smashed into all these people. That was made up by some federal Homeland Security official who was trying to establish a non-racial, non-hate crime, non-alarmist you know, narrative. Why? What possible motive could you have for making that up? S.E. Cup and the people who had this confirmed for them should name the source that gave them the false information so that people can know that this was the game being played. I don't know the motivations uh, for what this guy did. None of us do. Um, I, of course, agree with being responsible and not speculating wildly. But no one should be that certain of the narratives that come out so quickly after things like this happen. And these are narratives that, as John just pointed out, 
are are often constructed by both law enforcement and media. And we've seen it before. And it's politically motivated. This was Benghazi, which which was, you know, was immediately um, determined not to be terrorism, but was a you know, was it was a result of people angry about a filmmaker. This was the 2016 Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando. Right. Once again, this was not this was determined and, and broadcast as not being uh, um, Islamist terrorism, but the product of uh, sort of, uh, Western homophobia. Um, so I, I think skepticism- San Bernardino, if you remember, yep. San Bernardino terrorist shooting was we were told the result of an argument at, a, at an office Christmas party. That was the Obama administration's M.O. was for some reason, you know, downplaying any evidence of terrorism because they wanted to claim that they had defeated terrorism or something like that. Yeah. So I look, of, of course, I'm not I'm not a, I don't I don't know the money. It's a weird story, weird, horrible, tragic story. I don't know what did. But, but you can feel a narrative being constructed in the absence of 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 knowing what what the motives are. And, well, and the, that's what the problem is. And because the narrative already in place that has been emphasized over and over again by the president himself is that, you know, it's it's uh, white supremacy, you know, right wing uh, extremism. This this is the greatest domestic terrorist threat that the country faces right now is is radicalized white guys. And there's certainly evidence for that. I mean, we saw it in Charlottesville. Right. But it's been treated in a way by the news media as something that's worthy of their investigation and and thoughtful analysis. Not so when the when the other acts of domestic terrorism are uh, committed by people who aren't white, and that's not doing the job of the media. The media's job is to tell the is to inform the public, even if the information that doesn't suit their own kind of liberal worldview on this stuff. Look, I mean, Noah's right that in a in a in a better world, in a world where social media didn't exist and where these narratives couldn't form instantly the way that they now form instantly, reticence is the way to go. And uh, reticence would be the way to go in all of these cases where particularly there are racial sensitivities in a country in which we th- these issues are a tinder keg. But if you have a circumstance in which a, you know, white police officer uh you know does something to a black suspect the idea that reporting on it recklessly will inflame racial tensions in the united states and create terrible problems that is viewed as some kind of a whitewash and an effort not to hold a pro- proper people accountable for evils that reflect the sins of our society in this case implicitly i've worked in newsrooms you know, I haven't worked in a newsroom in a long time, but I've worked in various newsrooms, and I can tell you that the it doesn't even need to be said that a story about a black man driving a car into a crowd of white people at a Christmas parade, killing, you know, six 80-year-old grandmothers and a child you want to be very careful about because you don't want to inflame racial tensions and create racist backlash against black people. That impulse is commendable. Note how it has absolutely no role in reverse, in which the notion that you want to inflame racial tensions and convince African Americans that they are being targeted for murder and destruction the notion you want to be reticent about that because you want to protect people from mob rage, particularly when that mob rage will often have the worst consequences near to the black and you know minority communities because that's where these riots break out. Those are the neighborhoods that are often burned down first. Whatever that is, we don't have anymore. We have no reticence about that. There is no media reticence about that. That is the go-to story, you know. And well, so, there's all, the other part of this story, though, that is of interest to people outside of Wisconsin, because it's a nationwide problem and one that a lot of people have been tr- 
pointing to with the rise in violent crime in this country over the last two years is the bail issue. And we did have pretty pretty quick confirmation of the fact that this guy was out on a thousand dollars bail for crimes for which he should never have been released on the street for such a low amount. And so that kind of reporting has also been more muted. I mean, on, on conservative press has been covering this because this is an issue that that conservatives have raised a lot of concerns about, particularly in cities like New York, where where these low bail, uh, the bail reform efforts um, have been have have led to a lot of violent folks being released on the street and recommitting uh, committing new crimes. So that's a serious issue, too. Again, it's very muted. Um, it's so muted that when members of the squad, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, are, are the same day that this guy out on bail commits these horrific, you know, is alleged to have committed these horrific crimes, uh, she's calling for further bail reform. She's saying, we really, we got we to gotta do more of this, more of this. Okay, so this is important because this is, you know, one of commentaries... Uh, obsessive focuses of study is the is the rise of the so-called progressive prosecutor. So uh, earlier this year, or last year, I can't remember now, Andy McCarthy wrote this remarkable piece where it's called the Progressive Prosecutor Project. Christine uh, followed up with, with another piece this year uh, on the same subject. And Andy has a piece today in National Review called The Progressive Prosecutor Project Strikes Again, in which he points out that the progressive prosecutors always have the courage of their convictions as long as they're just gas-bagging about their lofty aspirations for society, which is to say right up until their abstractions about equity, systemic racism, and the need to reform our broken system crash into the reality of violent recidivist crime. At that point, it's always some underling's fault, some nameless bureaucrat who didn't get the subtle, oh-so-thoughtful nuances of the boss's position. So Milwaukee District Attorney John Chisholm, okay, whose office it was that recommended the $1,000 bail that Daryl Brooks got off on and then was around to use his car as a vehicular, apparently, you know, or, uh, you know, uh, allegedly use his car as a, as a, as a vehicular homicide weapon. Um, so he issued a memo saying he was going to look into how this inappropriately low cash bail of $1,000 was settled, right? And Andy says, oh, really? Ah. You know, where could the subordinate prosecutor in his office have possibly thought that uh, when for years Chisholm donned the mantle of self-styled progressive prosecutor, right? He proudly said so himself. In 2007, when he was elected DA, Chisholm told the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel that it was inevitable, guaranteed that some criminal who avoided being detained due to Chisholm's enforcement philosophy would use that opportunity to go out and commit murder. Quote, is there going to be an individual I divert or I put into a treatment program who's going to go out and kill somebody? You bet. Guaranteed. It's guaranteed to happen. It does not invalidate the overall approach. So this is the, you know, this is the crux of the matter here as a matter of policy, not, you know, what black people are doing to white people or white people are doing to black people, but Due to a specific choice in policy, Daryl Brooks had the means, motive, and opportunity to drive his car into the Waukesha parade. He was out on, he had, there was a warrant for him in Nevada for uh, child sexual abuse. He had driven his car over the mother of his, the teenage mother of his child. He's almost 40 years old. He shot at his nephew who sought a protective order against him. Clearly, he is a dementedly violent person. And there he was out on the streets doing whatever it is that he wanted to do. These are practical public policy matters that are going on that are important to debate and connect to what's going on in California in Beverly Hills, in Mill Valley, in San Francisco, with these bizarre flash mob, I mean, they may not be flash mobs, they may be organized mobs, robberies of high-end stores, right? The Louis Vuitton in, uh, in, in Beverly Hills, uh, stores in San Francisco, stores at this mall in Mill Valley. Or w w which store? Was it a Nordstrom's in Mill Valley? Uh, Nordstrom's in Walnut Creek. Right. Uh, Walnut Creek, I'm sorry. So... Um, you know, what? why is this happening? Because criminals know that they are now 
um, that the state that they live in and across the country that the municipalities and places that they live in are working desperately hard to make sure that they don't have to serve in be in jail after they are accused of committing violent and and property violent crimes and property theft which is itself a violent crime as looting is a, actually a violent crime this is an issue that's why it should be on the front page it's not just that it should be on the front page because it's a horrible human interest story that these people were killed in waukesha it is a direct result of government policy choices by elected officials who need to be held into account for the results of the policies that they put into place not only by uh, you know a skeptical media but by the public who needs to know what they're doing so that when this comes up for a vote they know what has happened in their name and can i just add i i sent this on our text uh, chain uh, yesterday uh the argument which was made uh, during a lot of the the looting and, and destruction that happened after Black Lives Matter uh, summer was that, oh, they have insurance. I don't know why you're you just who cares? Someone's going to pay. Best Buy just reported earnings losses related to organized theft. And by organized theft, they mean the kind of stuff that we're seeing in, in, in California right now. Um, because they're not actually insured against all of these acts of theft. They have certain forms of insurance, but even these large companies are not insured against the kind of organized crime that's that's targeting these shops. And as a result, I mean, first of all, they leave those neighborhoods. We see that happen. It's happening here in D.C. too. If if you can't sustain a, a, a shop without constantly being robbed, you're going to close up because there's no point to it. And then the community complains that businesses aren't in their community and complains that, uh, that uh, of a police presence there when there is crime. So it's it's kind of a catch-22 for a lot of these businesses. And they just, they leave, they leave and they take jobs with them. Also, you know, this apolitical mass looting, which is what it seems to be, uh, would not have happened without the, uh, without the riots of 2020, which involved looting, right? Because looting sort of ne- during that period came under the umbrella of sort of understandable but unfortunate things that you know people do when 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 they are uh alienated by by the 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 terrible system so it's like they they came for the social justice and stayed for the looting so (laughs) right so most of that was looting but not all of it though in 2020 there was plenty of organized efforts by people who stole cars and then smashed them into the storefronts and got whatever they could and, and got out of there this isn't looting at all uh looting is a disorganized and spontaneous response to chaos this is neither disorganized nor spontaneous it's organized crime it's not a response to chaos this is the new status quo a considered status quo ushered in by political officials um none of this is has anything to do with looting it's more akin to um as john said in a previous podcast i think uh chicago in the 20s it's it's organized crime in response to a a new status quo ushered in by law and jurisprudential precedent yeah and, the, the, yeah, and the knowledge, the open knowledge that the consequences are have been suspended. Yeah, I mean, the that, reason that, that's the re, the question is what is the what is the risk reward calculus when you're going to commit a crime? Is the potential for reward worth the risk of arrest, incarceration? Right. What's happened over the last three or four years is that this 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 calculus has gone entirely screwy because people who live a criminal life know that authorities in many places that they live do not want to impose consequences on them on the grounds that there is some kind of inequity in the consequence as a general social justice matter. And so in their individual cases, it's like, yeah, it's worth it for me to see if I can, you know, clear a couple thousand dollars. That's the fantasy that people like AOC indulge in when they want to, you know, justify acts of criminal behavior. Some like Disney film where these people are only stealing to support their family by, you know, getting a a handful of coins to go buy bread and apples. (laughs) And that's nonsense. When you think about the scale of this sort of thing, it's staggering. You're talking about 80 individuals who are who are lifting whole inventories out of a storefront. They have to fence those goods. 
you have to have somebody who knows how to offload that sort of thing, which which is a whole network, a vast network of people who can individually source these items in ways that they can't be traced back. And then you got to clean that money. I mean, this is a very organized operation that requires a ton of people to be involved with, knowledgeable of this criminal conspiracy. But even when you don't have a very organized operation, you have what I think John was suggesting, which is policy and enforcement mechanism that, that is that is hands off with regard to prosecuting real crime. So in D.C., we've had the, in my ward, we've had 188 percent increase since last year in armed robbery. And a lot of those are committed by juveniles alongside an adult. And the who takes the hit if they get arrested? The juvenile, because they'll be back out on the street very quickly because our, we're very, very uh, easygoing about juvenile crime in the district. The same with carjacking. But I will say this, there's also this weird inability to confront reality. So in the in Washington, D.C., for a long time, the Washington Post refuses to write the race of criminal suspects, people arrested for crimes. Why? Because people were complaining that it was too often listing a black person as a suspect. Well, it's a majority black city. I mean, that it, it makes sense, right? Except that the Post and its editors were so sensitive to the idea that they would be seen as racist if they report the facts in a majority black city <laughs> that they stopped doing it. And it's become a kind of running joke for locals who try to find out about crime. You never read the post on crime. You go to other sources because the post is not going to inform you about what's going on. I mean, I, I think the uh, two, two points harmonize here. So Christine's talking about the insurance problem, which is people are insured. The physical property of the store, right. Is insured the way physical property is insured, you know, window breaks, uh, doors broken into, that sort of thing. Often those facilities aren't owned by the business. They're renters in a mall or something like that. It is the mall owners who collect the insurance. The stuff that is inside the store is the responsibility and obligation of the store owner. So they're not getting anything. They're not getting insured. They're not, they're, you know, there's no such thing as insurance against theft. I mean, you can, on taxes, on your tax, as a business matter, you can deduct theft from profits. But th that's better for, you know, that's better for an individual in the sense that if your house is burglarized and you get a tax deduction for, uh, and you, you you don't get stuff, you know, you get a tax deduction for that. Um, it's a, just a very strange thing where you then say, well, it's okay. It's really not, you know, no real damage or no real harm has been done except in some vague way, maybe to the insurance system or something like that. And then Noah's point about, about organized crime is important because organized crime organizes as a result of distortions in the general economic relationships in a society, right? That's part where, where they where they see the opportunity is in some economic area that has somehow been left fallow or, you know, deemed too morally repulsive to for, you know, uh, proper businesses to engage in something like that. If you have organized crime now or in an organized fashion openly publicly looting from stores that happens it is a result of noah's favorite term the incentive structure created by public policy and that's why what is really important you know and it's a little unfortunate that that, that there was the predicate of um gavin newsom's failed recall in california which was a which was a which was all silliness i think it is very important that Chesa Boudin, the progressive prosecutor in San Francisco, is now facing a recall effort because that is the incentive structure to tell progressive prosecutors that the public isn't going to stand for their behavior, even in America's most progressive city. But as I'm saying, the scale of this thing suggests that just even replacing this horrific DA with somebody who actually wants to do the job won't get it done. Because, you know, it's one thing to get a grab, a, you know, have a, a trash bag full of cosmetics that you took out of a CVS. It's another to lift an entire storefront because you got to do something with those stolen goods. It's extremely high profile, hot merchandise. You have to have a gigantic network that will offload that stuff for you and translate it into cash. Well, I, I, you know, that's I think that's a, that's an interesting logistical point that you're making. The question here is whether we have had some breakdown, social breakdown in the idea that crime, particularly, you know, that that 
that crime is either victimless or righteous or is an expression of uh, injustice and unfairness. And I, I, you know, I hate to constantly invoke the 60s and 70s, but this is a view, this is a policy that is entirely associated with one political party and one set of ideological attitudes that is ideologized on the left, and it's the Democratic Party. These candidates run on Democratic Party lines. They win on Democratic Party lines. If the crime problem doesn't abate in the United States, the Democrats are going to again be the party of crime, and they are going to fry for another two generations the way they did before. This is another thing that's sort of frustrating. Maybe not two generations, <laughs> a generation and a half. A macro analysis of you know what's happened electorally over the course of the last year would lead you to suggest that roughly the Democratic Party's brand is in trouble. And a lot of these feelings about the Democratic Party are a result of how you feel about the president, whether he's doing a good job or a bad job. And that's the sort of thing that renders this all kind of academic. Um, but I don't think that that's entirely explains this phenomenon because Joe Biden is ostensibly a tough on crime Democrat. I mean, he hasn't really abandoned that. He's walked it back a little bit in the primaries to comport with his party's you know, new lax sensibilities when it comes to crime. Um, but in, as president, he hasn't made that a big deal. And he's consistently repeated and acted in ways that suggest he doesn't support the defund the police movement and doesn't support the kind of decriminalization movement that has overtaken a lot of these cities. But that's coloring uh, voters' opinions about the Democratic Party, too, in ways that I don't think the political analysis that looks at things from a 30,000-foot perspective as all events emanating from Washington really can explain. I mean, I think that's that's exactly right. And it doesn't matter, by the way whether Joe Biden is tough on crime or not tough on crime or something like that. He's happily meeting with Rashida Tlaib, who is a radical, you know, no bail, you know, no punishment, defund the police person. Defund the police is a democratic policy proposal. He right, cannot he's escape not an imposing that. figure. Joe Biden's not an imposing figure. It on doesn't party. matter whether he's an imposing figure or not. He is the head of the party. You know, if he but said he's not one that that leads the party per se, he's being led in many ways by more right. vocal elements of its of the coalition. But it, but but you know, it's a distinction without a difference in some sense because if he, if you know, a lot of people are saying Jonathan Chait is saying people are saying he needs a sister soldier moment. He needs to go and say all of this is terrible, right? I you know so let him let him try. I mean it it's not it goes beyond like saying somebody who says that all white people should be killed is bad. Like that was a pretty that was a pretty easy pull for Bill Clinton against an unsuccessful rapper out of nowhere who said something that you know I got to say it was it wasn't that easy. It really wasn't because no. he wasn't going after Sister Soldier, he was going after Jesse Jackson who no, was right but, there. No, it was easy because right he him. didn't have to go after Jesse Jackson. That's why it was easy. He was going after Sister Soldier cuz he was too chicken to go after Jesse Jackson. So that's why I'm saying it was pretty easy. What I'm saying is he can't just there is no Sister Soldier here the sister soldier is aoc the sister soldier is rashida Tlaib. the sister soldier is chesa boudin or larry krasner in philadelphia or alvin bragg the incoming manhattan da or all of these people who think that their job as prosecutors is to let criminals off the issue in the 1970s was judges who let criminals off that was a huge political issue in cities. Let him loose Bruce. There was a judge in New York who was called Let Him Loose Bruce. Like that, that is that is the kind of thing that happened in sort of populist early talk radio stuff was you get some guy who goes and some liberal judge lets him loose on the basis of, you know, ridiculous constitutional interpretation. And then that guy goes out and kills somebody else. But now you have an entire architecture an entire architecture of a, you know like a loose network of local DAs and 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 congressional politicians who are all advocating for this policy and if the public experiences this directly and personally you know how we said yesterday that you know the thing about inflation is that it affects 100% of people well in the 1970s and 1980s 
crime affected everyone in a in a in a in, a, in an interesting way because of course not everybody was going to be subject to crime it was much worse in cities and all of that but the feeling that you were unsafe the feeling that that things were bad and unsafe the number of locks you had to put on your door the fact that if you drove into an urban place you needed this bar to go across your your steering wheel so that no one could steal you could break into your car and steal it the number of radios that were broken cars were broken into and stolen all of that everybody in america felt relatively unsafe that's a hundred percent of people and if you wanted to feel safe you needed to buy a house in a place where there was a giant gate and no one was allowed in without being called in from the desk turning you know turning residential neighborhoods into essentially apartment buildings with you know doormen and security guards if that happens the brand the democratic brand that is already suffering because of inflation and because biden doesn't know what he's doing and because of afghanistan and all of that that brand i don't even know what happens to that brand because once people associate you with being feeling unsafe that is years of rep of, of reparative conduct that's going to be needed to change that to uh, it's important because the, the this is the democratic party brand actually to uh, already um and i think to noah's point about how biden is actually not the he does seem feckless and like he's he's being led by his party there was there was this outrage there's this insane interview that jonathan swan from axios did with rashida talib recently where you know he was asking her about you know criminal justice reform and he said you know uh you're backing this bill to to end federal prisons to eliminate all federal prisons and you know what about the downside and talib's like oh yes everyone thinks we're just going to release everyone and swan says but the act that you're endorsing actually does say that it says you want to release everyone so she's clearly not even well informed about the legislation she's going around saying we need for for racial justice reasons i mean they are arguing for in, extremely radical things as a as a mode of posturing as a way of you know furthering their their chosen narrative but when you start to look at the details of these things i mean abolishing all federal prisons now most prisoners are not in federal prisons they're in state state run facilities but still what will you do with these people what what happens what what kind of threat do they pose to society if you release them they don't have answers for that well and we see right now what happened in waukesha and it is this is the kind of thing that makes you stiffen and 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 get all wound up, and that's why I want to talk to you about Acton Unwind, the weekly roundtable discussion podcast tackling current events from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Every Monday, join host uh, Eric Cohn, whom we all had the pleasure to meet at our roast on, on Monday night, and Acton Institute experts, uh, including Dr. Samuel Gregg, Reverend Robert Sirico, Dr. Stephen Barrows, and more in this weekly audio public square where news, politics, religion, and culture meet for an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. Acton Unwind will explain the news of the week through the Acton Institute's unique perspective, connecting good intentions with sound economics as we work to promote a shape of, and to shape a society that is secure, free, and virtuous, one characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles to subscribe to Acton Unwind, visit acton.org slash commentary or search Acton Unwind on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are available. That's acton.org slash commentary to subscribe. And again, uh, the Acton Institute's perspective is very much the same as you will find in David Bonson's necessary new book, a great present for the holiday season. We got Hanukkah coming up on Sunday, uh, starting on Sunday, eight days. You don't want a stocking stuffer for Hanukkah? We don't really have stockings, but let me just use the term. Or just a just a you know midweek present for Hanukkah. David's book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, is a perfect complement to the intellectual diet of people who believe in free enterprise believe in ordered liberty and want to understand how uh they connect so uh, using the form of the daily devotional um david has a page uh on each economic truth that he lays out 250 of them supported by 
great quotes from great writers, thinkers, economists that show how if you want uh, human flourishing, um, it is not enough to just have a free market and it is not enough to have religious liberty. Uh, you need to have the two play and interact together so that economic behavior is virtuous on the one hand and so that virtuous behavior is in some sense rewarded uh, by the uh, fruits of your labor. So that is, there's no free lunch, 250 economic truths from our friend David Bonson of the Bonson Group, that multi-billion dollar financial services and management firm that is the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of that industry. And we thank both the Acton Institute and David Bonson and the Bonson Group for sponsoring the Commentary Podcast. Um, so where do we where do we go from here, my friends? <laughs> what do we want to? Oh, I want to just point one thing out. I sent this to you guys from um, Politico's playbook this morning. Uh, as as the as the uh, Washington media desperately looks to write about what's going on. In, notably inside the Biden White House with a with a, with an eye toward providing some good news or some heartening news or whatever in a, in a uh, for a place that has uh, has experienced almost no good news for months right they have this astounding little item about how Susan Rice former Obama national security advisor and now Biden's domestic the head of Biden's domestic security, whatever you call it, domestic policy council, how uh, when you go to work for her, you have to provide a writing sample because she's a real stickler for a good memo. She prints out the briefing memos, information memos, decision memos. She prints them out and sticks them in a hefty binder to review. AIDS have to prepare extra for Mondays because they know Rice will have spent her weekend reading through the binder and will have follow-up questions. The Domestic Policy Council is essentially an internal think tank. How the hell are you going to figure out who should work for your stupid policy council if you don't require them to provide a reading, a writing sample first? Have I gone insane? Am I am I taking crazy pills here? A stickler for proper grammar and pronunciation, Rice wrote in her memoir, Tough Love, I have a particular pet peeve about proper comma usage. Susan what takes does this seriously. Have to do with this? Susan takes this seriously. If she tells you your memo is really good, that's a big deal. Aaron Pelton, who has worked with her for many years, told West Wing Playbook. I mean, are we now grading the Biden White House on such a ludicrous curve that we are to celebrate the fact that the Domestic Policy Council writes memos that the head of the Domestic Policy Council reads? How about the domestic policy itself? Who cares about the memos? Of course they write memos. I'm glad she loves commas. Maybe she shouldn't be over overseeing a disastrous <laughs> domestic public policy agenda. Well, we can't, we can't, <clears throat> excuse me, we can't grade the uh, Biden energy secretary on uh, her, her knowledge of how many uh, barrels of, of oil the, the country uses a day. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, somebody yeah. asked Jennifer Granholm, uh, you know, what the release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, how many, you know, how many days of oil that would, you know, that, that would represent. And she said, I, I don't have that figure here for you. Yeah, she didn't even know the basic number of the number of barrels of oil that the country well, of uses. Of course, she did. She just didn't want to say it. And she, this is don't say. Of course, she did. We don't know. That she I'm did. not sure she knew. Yeah, I'm not sure at all. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, 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 you guys are being very generous. So I think she knew, and she didn't want to say it because it amounts to 2.5 days worth of oil. That's yeah, that's humiliating. What I yeah, uh, I mean, here's the thing: she didn't want to say it. So, so you're saying she took the hit for the team. Well, she knew she wasn't going to take a hit at all because she's not Rick Perry. I don't know. She, she took she... a hit. You don't think that's taking a hit? No, I don't. I don't okay. think it'll make the comedy shows. I don't think it'll make late night. I don't think it'll make a news hit. I think it'll it showed up in Town Hall's Twitter feed 
And that's where it's going to beginning, middle, and end to that thing because nobody is, people are too invested in the success of this project. Jennifer Granholm, they can Greg Gutfeld's 11 p.m. show on Fox has a larger audience than Colbert, Kimmel, and Fallon. That's so true. I no bet one it White makes that show. Or no one watches, watches Gutfeld. We have very bifurcated cultural identities here. Um, the, the, the extent to which Democrats will, will encounter this, it will be accidental. Well, I mean, it's Democrats don't have to encounter it. Let's just put it that way. It's just another little cutesy thing to put in your, you know, someone could use it in the debate in 2024, you know? This is the, the, the death of, of spin. Spin used to be, you know, not outright lying or, or pretending to be ignorant, but massaging the facts. Nobody even bothers to massage the facts anymore. They just make stuff up or pretend to be ignorant so that they don't have to describe why their policies are nonsensical and publicity stunts. Well, that that's why when Jen Psaki was asked directly, would the president now say he was wrong to call Kyle Rittenhouse a white supremacist? Her response was to just totally ignore that question and say, well, Trump called people, you know, Trump was really the problem. Try to try to revert, you know, back to the anti-Trump stuff. And it's not, nobody's buying it. I mean, it's, it's, it was slanderous. I, I'm still outraged that he used this kid in a campaign ad. I mean, I don't know who's not buying it or buying it. I mean, that that is her job, right? She is the sacrificial lamb. She goes, she gets asked this question to which there is no good answer, right? Because if she says, yes, he's sorry, he said it, then Biden gets people angry whom he needs desperately. And if he doesn't say it, then she looks either bad or, or for those same people, she looks like she's a good soldier standing up for the team. She's Sarah Huckabee Sanders, sort of lying for Biden, and that's something, you know, she's the, their, their version of the press secretary who will say or do anything to support the, you know, to support the principal. And for people on the team, uh, that's that's just great. And anyway, of course, Kyle Rittenhouse is a white supremacist because all white people are white supremacists, according to the doctrine of white supremacy. Um uh, and of course, nobody who says these things believes it of themselves. I want to just quote one line uh, from uh, New York Times theater critic Jesse Green in a review of uh, two-time Pulitzer Prize winner Lynn Nottage's new play, Clyde's. Okay? Quote, this is in today's paper, the systems that control our lives institutional racism, predatory capitalism, the prison industrial complex seem as powerful and implacable as gods. Let's talk about these systems and how they control Jesse Green's life. He's a graduate of Yale, worked in theater, wrote a celebrated novel, then wrote a celebrated book about being a, a gay man who uh, you know, ended up as a parent became a theater critic, now is the chief theater critic of the New York Times, which is the single most powerful position in all of American theater and therefore a, the dominant voice in an entire cultural industry. And, you know, the system that controls his life, institutional racism, predatory capitalism, the prison industrial complex, apparently they're pretty great for him. Woo! What a terrible world he lives in that has showered him with such unbelievable bounty. And I think about this today as we are on the, you know, we are on the cusp of Thanksgiving. Who are these people? How do they talk about a country? He's a he's he is a a Jew and a gay man in the United States. So a hundred years ago. He, he would have faced incredible institutional hardship in whatever country is the, his, you know, would have been his country of birth, escaping to the United States, which also wasn't, you know, institutionally friendly to, you know, to, to Jews. You couldn't, you know, get into the college of your choice. You couldn't work at white shoe law firms. You know, you couldn't work on Wall Street. Nonetheless, you know, would have made his way, right? A gay man, you know, could have been arrested simply for being standing too close to another man on a dance floor until 1970. 
here he is. He's 60 years old, 62 years old. Everything about this country has been a blessing to him. And he sits there and writes a review in which he says America is garbage. What does this tell us? Does he really believe this? I mean, I think he probably believes it in some theoretical, you know, uh, abstract fashion as he takes his Uber from his Upper East Side apartment to the theater where people bow and scrape as he as he ascends to his seat in, you know, his seat E101 on the aisle. But this is, but this. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but the, but there is a weird shift that's occurred, and it, I think it's accelerated in recent years, or at least it's become more visible to to more people. But the elite in our country, the abstractions they cling to, we used to cling. We we all have abstractions about this country and about our society, right? They used to be, I think, more positive than negative. It was, you know, a general feeling of patriotism, pride in one's country, a, a sense that it's this is a decent place where if you work hard, you can try to get ahead. Um, not a perfect place, but a place that allowed for a lot, a range of, of human flourishing that really didn't exist anywhere else on earth. And there was gratitude for that. Um, you know, a strong military. So we felt safe in our own, within our own borders. Um, lots of abstractions, right? And you can you can mock them, as I think a lot of people who live on the coast and mock the pride and patriotism that people who don't live there have. But the abstractions of the elite now are all fairly negative. They're they're, they're very they're they're about systemic racism. They're about white supremacy. They're about all the things that they feel have gone wrong in a society from the very beginning. So we're rewriting history to make sure that that's that that tale starts in 1619, if not before. And so we end up with a Thanksgiving where we we I hear a lot of people talking about colo settler colonialism and and genocide, and <laughs> it makes me sad for them because those abstractions can't help but in, infect your view of uh, of gratitude in general and how you approach your life and it's it's a very cynical thing um and it may, it does make me sad for them but i do I, I have noticed our elite embracing abstractions that are largely negative particularly about our country um and that's always there's always been a, a portion of the elite that's done that but it seems to be more widespread i don't know i i i i have no i i don't feel sad for him i would like a boulder to fall on his head I mean, he has been showered with riches by virtue of the say, accident of his birth in the United States of America, and he shits on the United States of America from his august perch as the leading figure in the oldest cultural industry on the planet Earth, the theater, which has been a you know mainstay of... Of, of Western civilization since Athens. And this is how he talks about the country. And this is one way in which you're, I think you're, elites have always treated America in, in, in the United States as though it was somehow a little disease. It used to be that people said that, you know, uh, America was thin and uh, culturally malignant because of babbitry and, and middle and bourgeois simplification. And only if we were only French, if we only had the cultural life of France and where they care about poetry or, you know, look, one thing, it's terrible to live under Soviet totalitarianism, but, you know, they, they you know, look who took down Soviet writers and thinkers and all of that. And like in America, we just, we celebrate businessmen and all of that. There's always been this, this, this line, right? And so I, I don't, I don't have any sympathy for them. What's what Abe, you were going to say? Well, what he would just say, well, just because I'm lucky, I'm I'm one of the lucky ones. That doesn't mean that the larger picture here is not one of great tragedy and abuse and and you know uh, uh, victimhood. You know, he he's in fact it's a it's it's a it's a sign of his generosity of spirit that he doesn't simply operate um, in response to his own good fortune, but can can see in the suffering of others the 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 evidence of such an unjust system. You can hold two thoughts in your head at the same time, right? I mean that that is actually what it, it means to be a um, 
let's say a um, an adult uh, like there are problems in the United States. There are pro- systemic. There can even be systemic problems in the United States. Uh, the story of the United States has been that those problems have laboriously uh, and with at great cost and often at you know great risk to a great many people have been addressed by the system itself to repair it over time, over and over and over again. And we are here in 2021, uh, still in the you know freest country on earth and it still needs you know healing and whatever you know uh, repair uh, because everything does we are all sinners and no society that we're going to live in isn't going to be you know deeply flawed because we're human beings getting together in a society uh, but that i may have a reason to be is i am an object lesson in the case of Jesse Green, of somebody who comes from a tiny minority of people, uniquely beleaguered in the history of humankind, uh, an effort 75 years ago to wipe my people out from the face of the earth, and here I am sitting at the summit of American life, and I'm just not going to, you know, crap all over the country that has that has that has rewarded me in this way, even if, even if. I believe that there are a profound injustices going on in it. That my example is the example that things can be better. And we need to follow my example. Predatory, predatory capitalism is the reason that Lynn Nottage's play is on Broadway. Because it's not going to make money. It's being subsidized by some theater company. I don't even know who's playing. I think the Manhattan Theater Club is winning. Where does the Manhattan Theater Club get the money? To stage Lynn Nottage's play. But you're just answering your own question. These are commercial incentives, right? I mean, there's a political philosophy here at root, sure, in a sort of cosmetic way. But this is also what the audience wants, what the people he's talking to demand. If he were to say, wow, I'm I'm super fortunate and I'm very grateful to this country for giving me that opportunity. That's the end of that for you. No he one wants to hear that. But he doesn't they want to, to, they want to hear how beleaguered he is and how insufferable this country is. And that's why he's at the pinnacle of, of the American experience. I would say that you don't have to say anything at all. You know, don't have something nice to say. Don't say anything at all. I was just struck. Well, then by you're it. conspicuously silent. You have failed to uh, give voice to the preferred catechism. I mean, these these are nostrums that are the the price of admission into this into this elite sector of society. So somebody has to mention the Women's March tweet. One of you sent that around. But you you have to always say something, John, even if you yes. put out a, a number of a dollar figure of $14.92 without acknowledging settler colonialism and genocide. Yeah, that was the Women's March tweet. They apologized because they announced that their individual donor average was $14.92. And then they realized with horror that they could not use the number 41492 in a row without saying what a horrible monstrous event the Columbus's arrival in the you know in the Americas was. Can I read it? Was. Yes. He says it was an oversight on our part to not make the connection to a year of colonization, conquest and genocide for indigenous people especially before Thanksgiving. So, so yeah. Want, yeah, go ahead. I, I you know I've brought this up a number of times but this just feeds so perfectly into it. Uh John McWhorter's new book makes the case that wokeism is a religion, is a superstitious religion. And here we have evidence. The Women's March realized they said a bad number. They can't. This is they said they said an unlucky number. It's a, it's a if it's a if it's a superstitious. Yeah, it's it's um it's um what we call Gemara in, 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 in Hebrew. It's the mystical numbers reflecting uh you know, a divine truth that is to be uncovered through, through the numbers that are that are being used. I want to, but I do want to say one thing, not to be both sides as a mish here, but as we head into Thanksgiving, um, you know, there is there is a a rising philosophy on the right, thought of as called national conservatism or something like that, which has a very unique and weird quality to it, which is that what it is claimed is that we need a nationalist philosophy. What they call nationalism, though I don't really think it is nationalism, but we need a new national agenda in the United States, which is effectively Trump. But nonetheless, uh, you know, we need to win. We 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 we're surrendering to liberalism, and and uh, we're not fighting it in the right way. And uh, there's all this. All, everyone else on the right is kind of surrendering and apologizing, and we need to 
you know, we need to take back every institution and dominate them and crush them and rebuild them and destroy them. And, um, you know, I mean, it's not like there isn't a lot of emotion, angry emotion that I share about the corruption of these institutions and everything. But my sense reading a lot of this over the last two years is that this tilts into the same kind of American loathing as a lot of the as a lot of the Jesse Green left is. This is America is corrupt. America is bad. America dating back to the Enlightenment thinkers that informed the writing of the Declaration of Independence and the and the logistical genius of the U.S. Constitution. That those thinkers were evil. That John Locke, who is the single most influential political theorist and thinker to influence, I mean, I think, you know, influenced all the other thinkers who themselves then influenced, directly influenced Thomas Jefferson, the drafting of the Declaration, and 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 uh, James Madison and others who drafted the Constitution, is bad, that the Enlightenment was bad, that this, that, that we took a terrible course away from uh, believing that everything that was going on was, you know, should be the result of some kind of divine understanding. I, I mean, I, I don't want to summarize it here because I, I will vulgarize it, but basically they shit on America too and they can drop dead. Well, it's, <laughs> they just have, it's, uh, it's the mirror image of wokeism, but they have a different original sin. Instead of uh, racism and slavery, it's the enshrining of personal liberty and what they view as um, boundless autonomy. Right. It's, it's That's also a very it's nice a, way of putting it. It's a political philosophy that is also a response to, to market forces, a very distorted marketplace of ideas that suggests radicalism is all the public really wants and that there is no marketplace for something as trite and cliched as the idea that America is both good and great. Um, but that's just not true. It's just the marketplace that they have invested in, over-invested. In my, in my belief, a very self-selected vocal marketplace of people who consume political philosophy as a form of entertainment um, that has confused them about what the public actually wants. Look, I think that's very true, but I also I also think that there is an in, this interesting commonality in the notion that America, as as Abe I think put it here, from wokeism to natconism was conceived in original sin. You know, was was conceived in sin. And needs some kind of a purifying baptism to correct itself. Or, I, you know, I'm not being a Christian. I may have totally mangled every conceivable notion of of of, of how of how that concept of original sin works. So I really apologize. That's bad of me. And I, I you know, please, please forgive me here. But well, um, yeah, it, it, it's okay to mangle it in the sense that, in truth, neither side. The, not the wokesters or the the natcons actually want to correct anything. Right. Um, they they don't. That's not what they're in this for. Well, they do. Yeah, they want to. They want to. They want to destroy the power and authority of the other side. So, in the case of wokeism, what they want to do essentially is tear down whatever remains of the institutional structures in the United States that support the notion of equality of opportunity meritocracy and the idea that the purpose of our uh, of the society that we live in um, is to create uh, as even a playing field and as fair a starting line as there can possibly be given this given the you know the inherently sinful nature of humankind which can never be entirely corrected for that they want to destroy and the natcons want to destroy them and in the end, what they both do as they describe as you read their passion as you as you read what actually is motivating the negative passion that is the key to understanding the force and authority that they have developed over over time it is a hatred of america as it is now they don't like america as it is now the natcons don't like american the effect of liberalism and egalitarian philosophy and sexual freedom and you know gender fluidity and all of that and that is america's sin america's evil for promoting it you know what's great hungary hungary is great let's all go to hungary we'll eat pollock shinton and you know we'll we'll let orban take over all of the institutions it'll be just fantastic let's go to hungary 
Well, that's, I mean, they also that's what we need. It's like suddenly the way everybody was was, you know, traveling to Hanoi to, you know, to Mary McCarthy and Susan Sontag and everybody was traveling to Hanoi to lick the feet of Ho Chi Minh. They're all going to Hungary and sitting and, you know, sitting there in Budapest and, uh, you know, enjoying a delicious meal of uh, goulash and, you know, with, with um, you know, with Hungarian intellectuals. Zygazun to you all. This is the greatest country on earth. I am grateful to live here. And I'm now going to talk to you about the X chair, for which I am also grateful because it can warm you up. It can cool you down. It can give you a massage. It's got LMX massage and temperature regulation. It'll support your back with its patented dynamic variable lumbar. It has high performance. It has quality engineering. It has extreme comfort. Those are all the reasons I love my X chair. Take my advice. Try X chair for yourself risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair shall be, you'll never go back. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month, xchaircommentary.com. Um, however, having said all that, I do want to say, you know, we, we live in a, our, our, our country is in somewhat desperate straits. You know, we have this fact that the suicide rate has doubled in five years. We have deaths of despair. We have, you know, we have this, um, uh, you know, Yuvalovin's point that we talked about last week about how, uh, we have a kind of epidemic of, um, withdrawal. Uh, social withdrawal, lethargy, as opposed to flourishing and all of that. And these are all matters that need to be dealt with, just as inflation is bad. It needs to be dealt with, just as all, you know, terrible things need to be dealt with. The thing is that we have the means, the motive, the opportunity, and the political right and the legal standing in which to take on the things that have made things bad and try to correct for them, which is what both of these philosophical traditions say we do not have. We have no agency to correct things according to the NatCons because we are functioning from a corrupted base in which what we think is good, as you say, which is, you know, which is a society cons- uh, designed around the liberty of the individual is a is a wrong-headed as opposed to the virtue as opposed to promoting the virtue of the individual is a wrong-headed philosophy and then wokeism which is the philosophy that says what i don't can't even you know summarize it adequately under these circumstances anybody well the, wanna... the the individual it doesn't matter what the individual does from the woke perspective because you are born into a uh, into a color of skin a gender a system that will never allow you the uh, to exercise your individual will for your own flourishing it will always oppress you there's no way out of it you're tra- you're a cog in a diversity machine and that machine is just going to run without whether or not you try to fight it or not like it's just that the passivity that's, that's implied there is is great uh, that is it's very interesting, actually. It's another thing they have in common is that they are essentially both about the erasure of of individual liberty, at least as a virtue, right? Um, because it's all about group identity uh, if, to the to the woke, right? They're for group identity, and the natcons are for. I don't know what you what 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 precisely you would call it because it's the it's not ordered liberty it is it is a society designed it's imposed to virtue it's imposed virtue right. right and of course that's where we ultimately get to the point that is impossible to handle which is who imposes the virtue because uh, I'm a Jew I'm not living in some Catholic integralist paradise if i can help it because i'm a jew and people like that tried to forcibly convert me and then you know torture me uh if i didn't comply so um i'm gonna do whatever i can to prevent those people from taking over i don't care if their society would be better i have my own children to think about and what's more once again as is often the case in these political revolutions like Obama saying, you know, I'm not going to wait for Congress to do things. I'm just going to do them themselves. Or Harry Reid saying, 
let's bust the filibuster for, you know, for, for judges I want. And Mitch McConnell saying, don't do that because we're going to use the same power when we can against you, right? That in the, in these sorts of cases, you want to pitch that, uh, you, you know, you want, um, virtue imposed upon you in the end, you're not going to be the one who imposes the rules. They are the people that you hate are the ones who are going to impose the rules on you. And the same can be said of the woke in reverse, which is you want group identity to run the society? Fine. Let us watch as group identity then destroys the very groups that it was in, it, it is supposedly intended to help bring to the fore of the United States and, and enshrine the current aristocratic system sclerotically for all time until the Chinese beat us into submission and make us a vassal state. I'm not going to, I don't want to end on this. I mean, it's on brand for us, but not really for Thanksgiving. Right. <laughs> I have yeah. to say. Yeah. Well, I'm grateful. I love America. I'm glad to be here. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I, I give blessings. I give thanks every day for the set of circumstances that led my, my, my grandparents to make the trip across my three of my four grandparents to make the, to make the dangerous trip across the seas to a, to a land that was not their own and where a language was spoken that they did not speak and to struggle and to suffer, uh, and, uh, and to, you know, make a better life for their children and then their children making a better life for me and my hopefully making a better life for mine. I don't know any other country on earth in which that was a possibility or ever was a possibility. I think that's true for all four of us. And, you know, if that's not something to be grateful for, even in the midst of all the of all the things that we complain about, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what is. So with that, a very happy Thanksgiving to you. We will be back on Monday for Abe, Christina, Noah, and John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.